ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. One of the remarkable facts of this visit by Albanese to Washington is that it is occurring. It is going ahead even though the US is busy supporting Ukraine in a war against Russia and busy supporting Israel in its plans and it's well it's an underway isn't it uh, to assault and wipe out Hamas I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud This election didn't just change a government it was a green slide Save liberal seats two term incumbents independence We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Yagara and Turrbal country in Mianjin, Brisbane. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation in Sydney. And soon we're going to be joined by Peter Harcher, who's the political editor and the international editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, to talk about the Israel-Hamas war raging in the Middle East and the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding in Gaza. This all coincides, of course, with the visit by our Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to Washington, PK, where he's made several major announcements about commercial investments between our two countries, standing side by side with Joe Biden, honouring America's global leadership and his relationship, personal relationship, with the President. Uh, I regard the United States as a very reliable partner. And I regard the relationship that I have with the President as second to none of the relationships that I have uh, around the world, or indeed domestically for that matter. It's a a relationship of trust. So you get the gist. It was a bit of a all the way with the USA vibe there in Washington ahead of a state dinner in his honour. And we're going to be talking more about this visit and the Middle East crisis with Peter Harcher in a while. But meanwhile, back home, the fallout from the referendum defeat on the voice to parliament continues. PK, we saw the end of the week of silence declared by Indigenous leaders as they regrouped after that referendum loss. Still not many have emerged to speak publicly, But you spoke to the prominent Yes campaigner, Thomas Mayo, about the open letter written by Indigenous leaders who supported the Yes case, the letter that called the no vote a shameful victory. There's a lot of pain out there. There's a lot of hurt that such a modest proposal was rejected by the Australian people. There's been a lot of hard work. And I've spoken with you on radio before about just how much work went into that opportunity. And to have it rejected is really painful for a lot of Indigenous people, but also for a lot of people that helped us, you know, that walked with us. That's Thomas Mayo speaking on RM Breakfast. Look, Fran, the letter and the breaking of the silence is really quite significant. Just to the letter, it's unsigned, so no one's put their name to it, but we we know that very senior Indigenous leaders are behind it um, and, and have confirmed so to me. So around 60 Indigenous leaders and community organisations were involved in the drafting of it. There were some, though, who, who didn't want to sign on. Um, and, you know, I've confirmed some thought it was perhaps too negative. They didn't really want to be associated with it. But I do think that was probably the minority. Most people wanted to send this 
strong statement out to suggest that the referendum defeat was appalling and mean-spirited, and they accused the majority of Australians of committing a shameful act, whether knowingly or not. Now, that language, a shameful act, is quite different to the language you would hear from the government, right, who have said, you know, Richard Miles saying um, this was the right decision, the Australians always get it right, rather, is really how he framed it, and others who've kind of defended it. Now, we know why. Governments have to defend democracy, and the majority of Australians did believe that this is what they wanted. That's what voting's about. But this actual letter really puts it squarely on the Australian people, on that 61-ish percent, and it it says that racism is part of the story of the failed referendum. That's something, again, that many in the government are not wanting to say. At some point, and I think quite soon, the government is going to go have to go beyond just pausing and reflecting, Fran, because the pain in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities right now is immense. The issues that are persisting are immense. I mean, I don't have to give you an example uh, that's far from from home in Perth, a teenager died in custody, Mm. right? Just in the last week. This is an appalling situation in the country. These issues are intense and real and pausing is not going to, she's not going to cut it forever. And that's the approach the government's taken. This statement actually, I think, obliges them to to listen, and we heard how they thought listening was a good idea. Well, listening can still happen even without a voice or a yes to the referendum, and I think perhaps that's that's missing right now. Yeah, though I think there are signs that individual ministers are trying to move within their portfolios. We know Jason Clare is is doing things around education. Um, there's some housing initiatives. Mark Butler is looking at initiatives in health. So I think there's those kind of moves. I did notice that the statement that Linda Burney, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, put out after that letter was published was indicating the government is not going to rush rush here. Her statement didn't comment directly on the letter, except it did say, and I'm quoting, we are looking forward to engaging with indigenous organisations and leaders across the country in the coming months, and we're going to take time to listen, engage and seek advice from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on the way forward. So, you know, I, I read that and thought the signs are the government's not going to rush into any major action like you know, committing to a new consultative body or something like that. But, PK, I think one very strong element of this letter, it says they are still committed to a voice. So this is their key message to the government and the people. They're still committed to a voice, just not one in the Constitution. So are we any closer to knowing what that would look like? No, because they're not any closer to what's, what that would look like. They really aren't. Look, the view is that we're not going to hear much about this till next year. I mean, we're already at the end of October. Yeah. The Prime Minister's going to be in China after this trip. At a government level, there is the government is not going to invest a lot of time on this issue for the rest of the year. There is a view that it's politically done damage to the government, that the government needs to get... Uh, very much focused or, or appearing to be very much focused. They would argue they were still focused, but at least in the optics around cost of living issues and issues that they consider to be more mainstream. I think Indigenous affairs should always be mainstream, personally, but this is the kind of message that they got. 
We've seen state governments pull back on plans around Indigenous affairs, treaties across the country. We are seeing something very different happening in our country uh, after such a long momentum was built up towards mm. this referendum. I think that that's goes to dangerous. your point that if they, if they go silent, if they slow down too much, it leaves the room there for the state governments or the state oppositions perhaps to start arguing against moving forward on treaty and truth-telling and those sorts of the momentum could be lost altogether, which is something that Professor Marcia Langton warned against in the, in the National Press Club during the campaign. And how prescient, right? Yeah. That press club address and that warning, I think, was the most powerful. And look how now it's it's more meaningful than ever. I understand politically why the government would want to steer away from both rushing or really devoting a lot of time into this in terms of the, the crude reality, the sort of real politic, the numbers of this. But I do think there is a moral obligation after Indigenous Australians uh, lost a referendum for a range of reasons, but lost a referendum that I think was quite important for that community. And, and I say that because the numbers speak volumes. Majorities in these remote and regional communities where there, there are the polling booths where Indigenous Australians were voting, the, the evidence that we can be sure of. And without some tangible action, I think that the country is letting Indigenous Australians down. And I, th I think that's worth mentioning. I think it matters. Mm. that, and, and at a time when I think there is great distress in that community, I think it would be incumbent on the government to think very deeply about the pace. Yeah, well, the need has not diminished, that's for sure. PK, also this week, we got the final recommendations from the Women's Economic Equality Task Force. This is an independent task force set up by the Finance Minister. It recommended more time and money for paid parental leave. Uh, they're recommending that Australia moves to a full year, 52 weeks of paid parental leave. We're currently not quite at, but heading towards 26 weeks. It also called for something called the activity test, which is something that requires both parents to be working before you can access childcare subsidies fully, to be immediately scrapped. It argued that Australian women face, quote, deep and broad-ranging gender equality. How much appetite is there, though, in the government to drop these recommendations, particularly one as expensive as moving to 52 weeks of paid parental leave, which is a government expense and an expense on business? I just want to sing the ABBA song, money, money, money. <laughs> it's all just about money, really. I think they would like to do lots of these things. They commissioned the report. It didn't just come out of nowhere. Yeah. That's right. And they and these things, I think, fit into their story as a government, don't they? You know, we've got this strong representation of women in our ranks. We take, you know, childcare and so-called women's issues seriously, participation. They want they want to do some of these things, but I just think they, they're getting a little timid because it is high cost. Now, it's also high reward. Don't forget that. It's high cost, but you get, you, you get a productivity reward out of some of these measures. But right now, I'm not, from what they're saying, hearing strong enthusiasm about that. I mean, right now, I'll tell you what they're focusing on, and let's go to this. On Wednesday, we got the latest inflation data with it jumping by 1.2% in the September quarter. That mm. was higher than expectations, largely driven by rising fuel prices as well as electricity and rents. Rents is, the, is a huge one. It puts the chance of a rate rise for the, from the RBA next month. Um, well, much higher, 50-50 uh, coin toss, according to some analysts, but much higher. No one's disagreeing with that. 
Not great news for the government, Fran, is it? I mean, they, this just hit them like a ton of bricks, I thought, yesterday. Well, it does. I mean, I, I would put the, I would suggest that the markets are factoring in a rate rise. It's much higher than 50-50. And in fact, you know, I was speaking to the ABC's uh, fi- finance editor, Ian Verinder, this week, and he's saying that a lot of the markets are factoring not one, but two rate rises before the end of the year. Now, that is really tough for Australians who have a mortgage and really tough politically for a government at the moment when the cost of living pressures are biting so hard. So, you know, those inflation figures, yes, they're built largely around things that the government has no control over, like a surge in in petrol prices that's only likely to increase given the troubles in the Middle East. So these are circumstances out of the government's control to some degree. Um, But if a government is in power when there's two more rate rises after, what, 12, is it, already? You know, people who have mortgages are feeling a lot of pain and this will be very, very difficult for the for the Treasurer and the Prime Minister to manage. Mm. goes back to that point you made earlier. The government needs to be seen to be focused almost singularly on the cost of living at the moment, though, you know, what all they seem to be able to manage right now, you can understand why, because as you say, it's all about money, is to recap and repeat the number of things they've already introduced to take the pressure off. Things like, you know, increase in childcare subsidies, you know, uh, energy relief for middle and low income Australians, those sorts of things. Um, But I think people are going to want more help Mm. and I'm not not quite clear what the government can do or will do. No. And if you look at some of the, if you really drill down into some of these numbers, particularly rents, which I mentioned, it is out of control, right? And that is a huge issue for them. I spoke to an economist on RM Breakfast, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, who said, you know, the the pace of, of how many people we're letting in versus the stock we're able to supply, supply and demand 101, it's just not being matched. And of course, you know, we know that's why the opposition has been trying to really pursue this immigration line as well. So, But, you know, economic growth also depends on being able to have the skilled workforce to be able to work and increase productivity. So it's a really tricky thing for a government to manage. It is. and But housing is not keeping pace. No. And that's why rent's out of control and people are cranky. <laughs> and so I think there is pressure increasing on the government now. Yeah, no doubt about it. Hey, this seems like a good time to bring in our guest. What do you think? Let's do it. Peter Harcher is political editor and international editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And our guest in the party room, Peter, lovely to have you. It's a pleasure, Patricia. Yes, Peter, great to have you. It's a very busy time in your patch, I know. Anthony Albanese is currently on that visit to the US, which will include his first uh, official state dinner at the White House with all the bells and whistles, although not with the B-52s playing, as it turns out. That's a disappointment, I'm sure. Inevitably, Peter, this visit has been overshadowed to a large degree by the Israel-Gaza war. Or does that backdrop, that conflict, add to the importance of this visit to allies talking at a time of increased global unrest? One of the remarkable facts of this visit by Albanese to Washington is that it is occurring. It is going ahead even though the US is busy supporting Ukraine in a war against Russia and busy supporting Israel in its plans, and it's, well, it's underway, isn't it, uh, to assault and wipe out Hamas. So despite two major foreign policy crises going on, the White House has very deliberately made the time and the effort to include the Australian leader uh, in, in an all, you know, full bells and whistles. Mm. I think this is only the fourth 
fourth state uh, visit that the Biden White House has uh, allowed in in this term. So it's a remarkable statement of two things I'd suggest. One is unity with Australia, obviously, and the priority that the Biden administration, at least, is putting on the Australian alliance. But second, and even more important and and fundamental from the US point of view, is that what this tells us about China, that the US is still uh, keeping its eye on what it considers to be the primary threat, which is China, and therefore prepared to, to put priority on shoring up its alliances that it sees in the front line against China, and Australia is one of those. Well, of course, the the Middle East is kind of the the elephant in the room, so much so that they were asked questions at their joint press conference about it. It is a a huge issue. Australia is now sending two uh, RAAF planes and more troops to the Middle East, and a threat of a broader regional conflict is escalating. I just want to get your thoughts on the way this trip, Peter, has kind of been able to handle this big issue and whether Australia and the US are kind of unified on their stance on what should be happening there. Well, I think they pretty much are. You've got um, the, the, the Americans, of course, because they are not only the security guarantor, but a very active ally with Israel, uh, have, the, have the whip hand on that. Uh, but the degree of closeness in the Australian position with the US position is intense. Um, the US president has uh, gone so far as to say that Israel cannot return after this war is over to the status quo ante and that it has to give priority to a two-state solution, which so it's just completely, Biden is just completely overriding Netanyahu's position of recent years. So the US is really on the cutting edge and pushing Israel hard. Australia is not doing that, but Australia is mimicking the broad two-handed policy of the US, which is one, to advocate for Israel's right to defend itself by eradicating the terrorist group Hamas, its military wing in Gaza, and second, at the same time, calling for a humanitarian pause and great care in targeting in the killing of Hamas so that the Israelis don't inadvertently kill Palestinian innocent civilians. Yeah, just on that, Penny Wong, Foreign Minister, this week called for, as you say, a humanitarian pause in the conflict with, quote, safe, unimpeded and sustained humanitarian access and safe passage for civilians in the war zone. It's a call being echoed by others, um, UK, most loudly and bluntly by the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres. Is that just us following, as you say, Biden is there as well? Penny Wong in her statement said what Israel, how Israel responds. So she repeated, you know, Israel has the right to defend itself against the brutal, brutal attack by Hamas. But how it responds matters. It matters to the civilians on the ground, the people of Gaza, but it also matters to other country, other elements of the region. Peter, how real is the risk of this turning into a bigger regional war involving proxies and allies and either? side and how, how much is the US you know trying to prevent that happening what's what's going on well that is the central question of this entire operation at the moment this is pretty much a contained effort by the Israelis to uh, pluck Hamas out of the Gaza Strip uh, and then presumably the people of Gaza can return to a better life uh, if Hamas is gone then the the Israelis can lift the 17-year, 16, 17-year embargo they've had on the place and allow people to return to their homes. 
and all the rest of it. If it doesn't, if it if this escalates, then it becomes uh, potentially uncontrolled uh, and potentially major war. You mentioned the proxies, the the proxies of Iran. It's the Ayatollahs in Tehran who are the actors on whom every eye is now trained. They control Hamas largely. They instigated or at least co-planned with Hamas the October 7 attack on Israel. They're the ones who control what Hezbollah does across the border from Lebanon with their rockets. It has Syrian uh, proxy militias. They also have the Houthi rebels in Yemen who fired some cruise missiles towards Israel this week before they were shot down by the Americans. So that's why the US has put, as you said, Fran, put such a premium on positioning forces and rhetoric and its diplomats to signal as strongly as it possibly can to Iran not to do it. Israel has so far delayed this ground invasion and there are reports of tensions between the IDF and Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, and between the US and Israel, who all seem to have different ideas of what to do next. Is there a possibility for de-escalation? I think pause, (laughs) the pregnant pause that we now see is is about as good as it's going to get. Mm. Uh, I think realistically you cannot have Netanyahu, uh, who is obviously held primarily responsible uh, for the fact that Israel failed to anticipate or prevent the attack by Hamas. I don't think he realistically, having now pledged to destroy and to kill every last member of Hamas uh, can back off or de-escalate. It would signal impunity for Hamas. It would encourage uh, Iran and its other proxies. Uh, It would delay and postpone any ability to get to an eventual peace settlement between Israel and the Palestinians. I don't think it would be in anyone's interests to back this off because it would just prolong the ultimate uh, confrontation. And I don't think in a practical way Um, Netanyahu can. As you you say, I think the reasons they've hesitated as long as they have is is primarily to see how many hostages they can negotiate out. The Americans are moving as many reinforcements as they can to protect their own bases, and it has dozens of them through the Middle East, anticipating any future escalation and trying to shut off options for American assets being hit. So they're very practical considerations holding Netanyahu back, but I don't think ultimately uh, when when those interests are settled, I don't think Netanyahu will uh, uh, hold back on the eradication of a terrorist group that has made the people of Gaza uh, uh, miserable and and preys on the people of Gaza, as well as, as we've seen, indiscriminately attacking Israeli civilians. Well, there is the terror group and then there are the innocent people being um, starved, access to water, uh, can't mm. get access to water, hospitals um, having lack of power supply. I mean, is Israel, I'm going to be blunt here, losing the public relations war here? I think that initial moment of sympathy uh, for Israel has already dissipated, yes, and I think you're right. Inevitably, uh, as the world sees more and more uh, innocent Palestinian civilians being killed uh accidentally, so-called in that dreadfully inhumane phrase, collateral damage of the Israeli bombings uh, on north, the northern part of Gaza, inevitably it will swing further international public opinion in sympathy of the people of Gaza uh, and the Palestinians. So, yes. And, Peter, the 79 Australians remaining in Gaza, including citizens, permanent residents and their family members, 
I'm, I can't understand why they're not allowed out using the RAFA border crossing because the aid is coming in now slowly, you know, not enough of it by a long shot, but the gate is open for aid to come in but not for people to come out. Our government says it's working hard to get people out. Penny Wong, I know, has been talking to, you know, those who, who are directly involved in this negotiation, the Qataris, the US, Israel's, Egyptians. Is there anything more our government to do here for these Australians? And what's, what's the hold-up? What's the block? It's quite a puzzle. It's quite a mess. And it's, for those people, it's quite a disaster. That crossing has always been, for many years now, um, the Egyptians have been exceptionally wary of letting anybody from Gaza cross into Egypt. Why? Because they don't want to. They don't want a flood, or they don't want to be seen to be ethnic yes. cleansing. What's going on? Well, they don't want. The, their primary concern is self-interested, of course. They don't want a flood. They don't want to give Gazans any hope that if they try to storm the border and, and and create a people movement that they're going to get through. They don't want any Hamas terrorists infiltrating and escaping into Egypt. The Palestinians have accused is Egypt of being complicit with Israel in enforcing the blockade, the long-running blockade on Gaza. So the Egyptians are not exactly, in real terms of support for uh, people from Gaza, it's not any more sympathetic, really, than, than Hamas. I mean, it's not prepared to let anyone out. Just yeah, but they've got governments so, clamouring at them to let their citizens out. Look, I, I would imagine that at some point it will allow the dual citizens out, but we don't know the numbers and the concerns and the conditions because, remember, there are do, there's a dozen countries or more in these negotiations that are being placed on it. We just We just don't know, but it's not the Israelis. The Israelis would be quite happy for all of the people of Gaza to drain out into Egypt and yeah. solve a problem for them. <laughs> so yes. it's not Israel, it's it's Egypt. Look, I want to pivot if we can and talk about China because that's where the Prime Minister's going next. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will travel to China in just over a week uh, from the 4th to the 7th of November. It's a big deal after being in the deep freeze for so long to have our Prime Minister go to Beijing and meet with the President Xi Jinping and the Premier Li Chang is a big deal. It's the first visit to China by an Australian Prime Minister since 2016, and perhaps symbolically it will mark the 50th anniversary of the first visit to China by an Australian Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, of course, in 1973. Uh, Anthony Albanese will be going almost immediately from the arms of a close friend in Washington to, you know, a trade partner that has not, not been the easiest partner to get along with. I think that's fair way of describing it. And an interesting little warning, I thought, from uh, President Biden uh, that, that, you know, that basically we're, we're better friends um, and, um, you know, a little, little warning shot. The alliance between Australia and the United States has never been more important than it is today. And we have never been more committed than we are today. How do you see what the PM has to do on this trip and what he needs to achieve? Well, you're right. This puts Albanese in a very strong position to then go and resume uh, relations. Not only just the invitation, but a strong request from Xi Jinping's government to please come to Beijing. Mm. Uh, in interestingly, Beijing has become the supplicant in this relationship as it removes the, the punitive trade barriers, releases Chiang Lei, uh, resumes political relations and has been uh, almost begging Albanese for months to, to fix a date for this trip. It's a very interesting uh, turnaround where those years of Australian defiance of uh, China's coercion have now turned into pleas for cooperation. What does Albanese need to achieve 
on this trip? Well, first, I suppose, uh, to show that Australia is a country that is happy to conduct diplomatic relations, trade and cooperate where it can. But um, it's doing it on its own terms. That's the, that's the sort of overarching lesson of these years. Not just doing it on its own terms, it's being very bullish about it. You know, Anthony Albanese has, has said publicly as he stood alongside Joe Biden, American leadership is indispensable, but it's not inevitable. Uh, the government has made some major announcements while they're on the ground there in the US. They're going to pump $2 billion into mining and processing critical minerals, which is all about, you know, getting around the supply chain blockages of China's control of, of this kind of element, vital element. Uh, Anthony Albanese joined Microsoft president to announce a $5 billion investment by the tech giant in Australia, all based around cybersecurity. So what are the optics um, to China of the PM travelling to the US, making these kind of announcements? He's going to be sitting down with Joe Biden, having an intense discussion about China and its its position in the region um, and heading over there. You're saying that, you know, they're the supplicant partner at the moment, but they won't be happening happy looking on and seeing what they're seeing at the moment, will they? Well, it's a chain of events that was set in train uh, by Beijing itself uh, when it imposed the political and trade bans. First of all, it was the Turnbull government that first took uh, a stand by banning Huawei. Then Morrison followed up and now Albanese. None of them have made a concession to China on its demands. None of them have surrendered to the coercion. And that sent Australia uh, more firmly into the arms of the US and that continues. You've just described, Fran, there, some of the elements. Essentially, what we are seeing is Australia merging much more strongly and comprehensively into the American, what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. Our countries at the industrial level are becoming more entwined than ever. It's industrial, commercial and government uh, merged. It's the tech end of it. It's cybersecurity, as you said, critical elements for renewable energy manufacture, for battery manufacture, uh, and into AUKUS and the military end of it. So this is a real meshing of the two countries uh, that was set in train by China. And China saw this. I mean, Xi Jinping's regime on in its foreign relations has been nothing but pragmatic. Having seen that its coercion of Australia was failing, it completely reversed course. And what Australia is now doing with the US is a continuation of what it started doing under the pressure of Chinese coercion. So Beijing shouldn't be surprised. And what Xi Jinping is aiming to do with this rapprochement with Australia is to try to take some of the energy out of the Australia-US uh, tightening of that alliance. Mm. Uh, to try and reassert China in the relationship and to try to return to the original goal of China with Australia, which was to split Australia off from the US alliance. Yeah. Well, you don't think the vibe of this trip is so close, the US and uh, Albanese and Joe Biden, you know, publicly declaring, you know, their bromance in a sense. It, it just doesn't seem the right the right temperature at all for China to achieve that, does it? Uh, no, it, it certainly does not. In, in fact, quite the opposite. But Xi Jinping respects strength and he doesn't respect weakness. We, we've seen that. Peter, I always love having you on the podcast. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Bye, Fran. See you, Patricia. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And our first question is an audio question from Jamie. Hi, friend and PK. I've always wanted to know why we have so much polling data flying about all the time and whether there's any public benefit to it. Just thinking about the referendum, to what extent do you think disengaged or disinterested voters may have succumbed to conformity bias and simply voted no because that's what the polls were indicating? 
Do you think polling data can be an affront to democracy? Keen for your thoughts. Oh, good question, Jamie. Well, well, I'm keen for your thoughts, PK. This is such a good question. And sadly, I've got the same question rather than an intelligent answer. And I'll tell you why. I don't think that I should on the fly give you answers that are not based in research and evidence. And I don't have any evidence that this confirmation bias is going on. But what I can tell you is that I have long wondered the same thing. Because we do know, and this is just human behavioural studies 101, this is like not some great revelation, but that there is a kind of groupthink that can happen. We do operate as humans where we we kind of get on bandwagons. There is is behavioural ways that we respond. And if you are being sold something that everyone's doing this, i.e. voting yes or no, or for Labor or the Greens or for the coalition or insert the thing, that perhaps it may have some impact, particularly on a certain group of voters who are not necessarily rusted on or really highly engaged, that it could. But it is a good question because we are obsessed with polls as the media. People make money out of polls. There is, there's an industry around this, Fran. Let's not Let's be really honest about this. That's there's a, there's a big industry. Uh, they make money. Everyone's making money mm. to find out how the government's going or how the coalition's going. They're important. I mean, most media companies spend a lot of money on polling, and they do that because they want to attract eyeballs to their to their product. Um, and as you say, people wait for these polls, so they, th- that suggests that they do have an impact then on on the sort of commentary that follows them. I would say though that there sometimes is a place for them. I think an important place, if you think about the latest referendum. Uh, many Australians were saying, well, before I make up my mind, I want to know what Indigenous Australians are thinking. And what the only tool really had for that at the time was some polling that showed two polls uh, that were done earlier in the year that showed that Indigenous vote was 80% or above. And that was oft quoted by the Yes campaign. Um, and, and refuted and, by the No campaign. And refuted by the No campaign. Turned out later it was pretty close to the money if we look and examine some of those remote and mainly Indigenous booths and areas. But um, I think it was an important tool in a sense in the referendum because it was an important issue for a lot of Australians to try and understand how Indigenous Australians were going to vote. Great question. I'm not calling for the banning of polling at all, but I do think that like anything, you should put it in proportion and that it's a really good question. And Let's find out. Surely someone's written a thesis on this, Fran. I'm sure they have. All right, send your questions in. We love getting them. We're especially fond of the voice notes like Jamie gave us then, which you can email to the party room at abc.net.au. Absolutely. We'll be back in your feeds next week. See you, Fran. See you, PK.